0: You get it now at the price that you want. And then six months to a year from now, you refinance it when the interest rates come back down and you just won the game. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel.
1: And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with Mike Cavagioni, who is. Host of the Average Joe Finances podcast and a real estate investor, real estate broker. So we're gonna go on a little adventure today and uh, hear about Mike's interesting story, which I'm actually curious to hear. We um, met at RubeCon a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, now he's on the show. So Mike, tell us a little bit about your journey that's led you to be here on the podcast today.
0: Sure. Um, so. It all started on a dark and stormy night. <laughs> um, so let, let's let's go back to um, the early days, right? So I have an uncle who invests in real estate, right? And he would always tell me about it, and uh, you know, because he was a he was a state corrections officer for the state of New York, and he was investing in real estate, and. He would just tell me, he's like, you know, one day I'm going to retire from the state and I'm just going to go around and collect rent checks and that's going to be my job. I said, that sounds like a great job, you know, like just going to collect money. I like that. So it's always been in the back of my head, right? As I grew into adulthood and everything and, and he is now retired and collects rent checks, right? That's what he does. He, he put his money where his mouth is. But anyway, I joined the Navy, and you know, while I was in the Navy, I, uh, I I bought my first property when I was 22 years old, and became an accidental landlord. Right? I wound up not being able to sell this property, uh, so I had to rent it out, and I was renting it at a loss. So that it kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. And uh, to give you some background on that, I bought that property in 2007. So just think about the year, right? What happened the very next year? Well, the real estate market world was destroyed. And so that, again, I was kind of stuck a little bit. And I wound up having to short sell that home for about $97,000 less than what I paid for it. Very, very painful. Um, so I kind of stayed away from real estate for a while while I kind of licked my wounds and you know started uh, paying back off my debt because I had a lot of debt at this point. And you know, I I knew I was coming out to Hawaii in the next two years because I had negotiated for my orders early, and my wife and I said, you know, we need to figure out a way to pay off all of our debt so we can buy a home when we move to Hawaii because we want to own a home again. We don't want to live in base housing or rent. So I said, okay, let's come up with a plan, and we did. We we started doing Dave Ramsey's uh, Dave Ramsey's baby steps, and we did it up to step three, right where we paid off all of our consumer debt, and we had about. in credit card debt and then a couple personal loans. So it was was probably close to $40,000 total. Uh, Anyway, in a two-year span, we paid that off and we also saved $40,000 in our our savings account. So when we moved to Hawaii, we were like, okay, we've got some wiggle room here. So we come out here, we use our VA loan to buy our home. um, And that was a whole process in itself. Because of the cost of the home, I had to put a certain down payment down. Because at the time, the VA did have a cap uh, for your for your purchase. And so I had to put one-fourth of the price of whatever was past that cap down. So I had to put about $20,000 down. Um, so that kind of ate into that $40,000 that we had, which we had for renovations, right? Which we quickly went through that as well. But I'm not going to get – that's a whole different story. But anyway, we buy our home. We're in Hawaii. We're like, yes, this is it. And I, I connected with a buddy of mine that was I was on Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt with back a couple of years earlier, and he invests in real estate. And he kind of mentioned it to me and then put the bug in my ear. And I'm just like, huh, all those memories from my childhood came flooding back. And I'm like, I want to get back into investing in real estate. I was like, you know, what happened last time was a fluke. It can't happen again. Right? Right? Can't. So 2019, I start looking at buying some properties and I start the journey and I start, uh, I put an offer on this duplex in Chesapeake, Virginia, get it under contract. We close in February, February 5th of 2020. So what happened the very next month? Well, the world essentially ended. And I said, okay, man upstairs, are you trying to tell me that real estate's just not my thing? Because if that's what you're trying to say, I get it. I'll back off. But anyway, throughout this process, I was also working on my real estate license and I got licensed um, and I started doing referrals on the side to make a little extra income. We, we get through the whole COVID thing and and we, we make it happen. I was able to get one of my tenants put into this rent repayment program. So they back paid all the rent that he owed me uh, and the late fees. So that property actually cash flowed $950 a month. I said, that's awesome. Well, as this was going on, I started learning about multifamily real estate. I was going to different meetups and presentations. And I said, I think I really want to get into multifamily. So I invested into my first real estate syndication uh, shortly after that. I actually sold the duplex, took the profits from that, put it into the syndication. I pulled some money out of my thrift savings plan and put it into another syndication. And then I took out a HELOC on my home and put it into another syndication. Right, So I was like really getting heavily involved in that. And I love the passive aspect of it because I was still active duty in the Navy. And if I'm talking too much, Terry, shut me up. I'm from New York. Sometimes I don't know how to shut up. Uh, But yeah, so basically that was kind of the pathway that got me into the multifamily space. And all throughout this process, even before I started investing in real estate, I had started um, a blog on personal finances called Average Joe Finances. And a friend of mine approached me and said, hey you should do this as a podcast as well because I know you love to talk as you're experiencing right now. And I said, okay, fine, man, twist my arm. And uh, I started the podcast and yeah. And, and as I was doing it, I kind of talked about my journey through personal finances that when I got into real estate, I started sharing, Hey, here's what I'm doing in real estate. I started bringing guests on that are experts in their field. And it's just been an absolute wild ride and so much fun, so much opportunity that's come from having the podcast, including being a speaker at RubeCon twice. Uh, I've spoken at a couple different conferences. Spoken is spoken a word. Spoken, a word, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, spoken. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That's the correct verb tense. You got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, and, and at a couple other conferences and meetups and stuff, and it's, it's just been a really great experience for me. And that's kind of, uh me in a nutshell, a really, really big nutshell
1: <laughs> um, all right, so there's kind of like I want to go two directions and so I'm gonna have to pick one of them first. Let's just stick with the with the real estate. So are at this point, you're putting together syndications yourself or you're investing in other people's stuff
0: so at that point, I was just investing passively. I am now breaking into the GP space now. I've been underwriting a couple deals. so far, nothing that that has stuck um because obviously with today's interest rates and and you know with the way cap rates are right now it's been very difficult to find something that is going to work right especially if i'm going to be taking other investors money um i want to be a good steward of that so i want to make sure i find a deal that's going to be a good deal right so that's that's been a little bit of a learning process for me and and uh, going through a bit of a learning curve there i'm also looking at some self storage deals as well I have a friend of mine that keeps uh, sending me some and and uh, me and my team are getting ready to underwrite a couple. So we'll see what those look like. But either way, like if it's multifamily or self-storage, as long as the numbers work where we can make this and it's going to be profitable for us and the investors, then 100% we're going to jump in on it and put an offer in. Mm-hmm.
1: No, but I think you're absolutely right. Like uh, You know, there's um, obviously the Canadian market and the U.S. market are not uh, perfect parallels, but- it's difficult now because I think we you know with the interest rates being where they are, um, and seller expectations being where they are. It's like those two things are just kind of a bit out of whack. And so, in order to like bridge that gap and do that deal, you need to have quite a distressed seller, or you need to have some other uh, amazing line of sight to add value that for some reason nobody else can see. So, I think it's absolutely sort of difficult. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Terry, that's a great point because when you show that disparity there, right? For for those that are that aren't watching this and you're listening, she was showing like there's like this big difference between where, you know, sellers' expectations are, where interest rates are. So all these things that in between that make it a that can make it a good deal. And you really need a distressed seller, right? But I think what happened is in 2021, it gave this air to sellers that well, I can ask for whatever the heck I want and I'm going to get it, right? Because people were just trying to buy as much real estate as they could. And it created this false expectation, I think, that I can put my own value on a property and it's, it's going to stick, right? Or because you know this is what the trend's been, I should be okay to sell it at this price. And I don't think what people realize is that, you know, hey, the market shifts. And if if you didn't get this stuff done by June of twenty twenty one, you're not in the same market anymore. This is a whole different world now. So I'm sorry, June of twenty twenty two, not twenty twenty one. Um but between twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, this is when, you know, everything was so inflated. So I think, yeah, that's that's a, a very good point, is that huge disparity that that we have right now between interest rates and seller expectations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's just it's just getting difficult, you know, and in terms of what I'm seeing on the ground. It's like for I guess most of the last year, there's just people didn't buyers did not have appetite. I think, you know, and the Canadian again, there's it's not a total parallel between the Canadian and the US market. I think we had a, a, a sharper correction than you guys did. But buyers just have not had the appetite. Now the appetite's coming back because our interest rate hikes are over for now. Your yours are not. <laughs> but you know, now it's now now people want to do deals, but the deals just don't make sense at the at the current seller expectation. So I think it's gonna take some time for that to work itself through and either the distress will mount or people will decide to stop going fishing and just take some of those overpriced properties off the market. So
0: yeah yeah yeah, you know it, that that's a great point because even so as a real estate agent too, out here in Hawaii, one of the things that I've seen is we had a point where we had this this slight dip. And I say slight, it was ten percent, right? We had a ten percent drop in prices one month, which is huge in Hawaii. Like that doesn't really ever happen. Prices normally only go up even during the regular market. And when that happened, a couple buyers I was working with, I told them I said, hey, we we have this price drop here. These these prices on these homes are coming down. Now's the time to get in. And they're like, well, the interest rates are still so high. I was like, I know that, but you get it now at the price that you want. And then six months to a year from now, you refinance it when the interest rates come back down and you just won the game. But a lot of buyers have cold feet right now because they're just uncertain as to where the market's gonna go. And I I get that. I get that. But You know, I think uh, at least in this particular market, because in the US, like our markets are all different depending on where you go. I'm I'm pretty sure it's the same way in Canada, too. But in Hawaii specifically, we generally stabilize very fast the real estate market. So guess what happened? The very next month, it went up 12%. So now it was above what it was the month before. And I said, look, Told you, <laughs> so mm-hmm. you know it's it's one of those things that you have to be paying attention to and actually know and understand your market, uh, which is what I was trying to convey to my buyers. Like, hey, look, this is the way the Hawaii market works, but still, you know, sometimes they have cold feet, and and uh, you know, I guess I just wasn't able to convince them that this was the right time. So,
1: enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode, or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, MindfulLandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can't, you know, I always what I always say, Mike, you can't save them all. <laughs> we, yeah, we, yeah. we try, but you can't save them all. Uh, but so tell me, I want to hear about the podcast. I, uh, you know, we got a chance to chat about that a little bit at RubCon, And you're saying, you know, like, if people are going to come on and use big words and make things seem complicated, that's kind of like not my thing. So, you know, yeah. what was your motivation behind starting the show? And then and then what did it turn into as it progressed?
0: Yeah, so the motivation was just my buddy convincing me to, to start a podcast and just start talking about the stuff that I was doing, and that was really generally it. But then when I started, I really started to enjoy the process of podcasting. Uh, the first time somebody sent me a, a message on LinkedIn and on Instagram and said, hey, I really like this episode, and, and you know the guest that you had on was talking about A, B, C, or D, or hey, this really helped me out. I was like, oh, I'm actually making an impact on some people. And I started to rethink about how I'm treating my podcast. I was like, okay, I need to treat this now more as a business, right? Because I'm effectively helping people right now. So this is more of like an education platform. And that's the way that I, I, I always treated it was as an education platform. And I said, well... You know, my whole thing about Average Joe Finances is, is that we are here for the Average Joe, Average Jane, right? We're here to make sure that your everyday blue-collar worker that is living in the rat race and trying to figure out how to beat their debt and build their wealth and control their freedom, that's that's our our motto, right? Beat your debt, build your wealth, and control your freedom. We want to be that platform for them. We want to be that space that they can go to to learn and not feel overwhelmed. So one of the biggest things that was always a passion for me was especially as I was learning the multifamily side there was a lot to take in there was a lot of different terms you had to know you had to know what KPIs are all these things right you know key performance indicators right that's what KPI is so what I do is on my podcast when I have somebody come on and they start talking about these different acronyms I have them break those down and I'll say okay what is that because I don't I don't want somebody that this being their first episode To come in and be like, I don't understand what they're saying. This is like a different language. And then they get turned off to it and they don't come back. I want somebody to say, they listen to my most recent episode and say, Hey, this was insightful. Let me go listen to some of the other ones, right? Let me go find one of the ones that's on a topic that I'm interested in. And they'll go back and listen to that one. And they'll realize that, Hey, we explain these things at a fifth grade level, right? So that anybody could understand it unless you're like in fourth grade or below, and you're probably not listening to my podcast then. So, um, but that, that was always the goal, uh, once I realized what, what the impact that my podcast was making. So I wanted to make sure that I was putting out information, uh, that was relevant, but also easy to digest.
1: Yeah. I think, first of all, I think that's, that's really a great thing. And I think that, you know, if I like personal, personal thing, you know, like I, I come from more of a business background, but like my husband is, um, is a mechanic. He works in a, like, a you know, a, he works at an airplane uh, manufacturer but like him and the guys around him get turned off of a lot of these decisions and and getting into that space because the way that it's like taught and it's actually not taught but the way that it's talked about is often this like high finance lingo and made to, to be quite complicated and when it doesn't have to be so I think that that's it's you know it's a very valuable thing and and you're you know the first podcaster I've talked to who has this mission to be like no like Every sh- everybody should be able to understand this. And I think that that's like, you know, super valuable. Also, I think about, you know, some of my tenants who are kind of stuck in that, you know, it's r- really, it's a rat race because you're yeah. working your salary, you're paying rent and you're not getting ahead. And it's because they're like missing something, you know? And, and I think it's, it's very valuable to have a resource out there for people that they can kind of check into that and 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 get some knowledge.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the thing is too, like, We're also for experienced investors as well. We just make sure that we explain it in a way that it's easy for people to understand. And, you know, I, I feel like there, there are other podcasts out there that do it too. You know, I've, I've heard other shows where they say, okay, Hey, can you explain this more to me? You know, like, uh, explain what this means. Another way that this started for me is that for me, it was also a learning journey for myself. So as I was learning the multifamily side, I was bringing on multifamily experts onto the show. And I said, I could use this as an opportunity to ask them the questions that I want to ask them as a newbie, right. And learn from them. And then that also provides value to, to my listeners, right? Because I'm asking those quote unquote dumb questions that somebody might be afraid to ask at a conference or at a meetup or, you know, because they're afraid that, Oh, you don't know that, you know? So I'm like, Hey, explain this to me. How does this work? And, um, I, I think by doing that, it also breaks down some of those barriers. Uh, But it broke down some barriers for me as well, because I was able to kind of get in there and learn what I wanted to learn. Um, And that's one of the selfish things that we get to do as podcasters, right? We get to ask those questions that we want to ask to learn the stuff that we want to learn. And uh, the, the secondary piece of that is the value that it provides the audience.
1: Yeah. Hunt. You know what? I could not agree more. Like, you know, and I think maybe (laughs) maybe this is more of like an off camera, off mic discussion, but like 100 percent that that's like the giant silver lining of podcasting is that you get to be like, okay, what expert do I want to talk to today? Where do I want to take this conversation? How do I want to educate myself? Because I have like half an hour of undivided attention of this person whose time I would probably have to pay for. I can pick their brain and then, oh, look, I can like let however many of my listeners uh, enjoy that conversation with me. So I think that's a huge uh, advantage.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had coaches on my podcast that normally charge $1,000 for an hour of their time and I got to talk to them for an hour for free and ask them the questions that I wanted to ask. I've had some of Tony Robbins uh, coaches and mentors, uh, people that are in his program on my podcast, and I get to pick their brain for free. So that that's one of the beautiful things is, you know, you get to, you have a platform, right? Because the thing is, if somebody's coming in your podcast, obviously they want to promote themselves too, right? And you're providing that platform for them to promote themselves, uh, which in turn can bring them more business, right? So that's the way I always looked at it is, hey, look, you know, you're having an opportunity to reach my audience right now. So I'm not paying you. I, I will never pay a guest to be on my show. There are some people out there that are like, oh, yeah, you want me to come on your podcast? It'll cost blah, blah, blah. I've actually had somebody tell that to me and I'm like, yeah, no thanks. So, yeah, there, there are some people out there that will do that. Uh, that is not something that that I will do. But, yeah, it's 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 the value that both you as a host get and then also that you provide to your audience. I mean, I I cannot overstate how valuable that is.
1: Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. So let's shift tax a little bit here One of the things that I wish real estate people talked about a little bit more is the sacrifices and lifestyle hits that we take on the road to where we are. You know, it's one minute, people think one minute you have a job, the next minute you're, you know, scooting around in your private jet or like eating in fancy restaurants or like doing whatever. And that's just not how it goes. Like there's often a long period in which, you know, you're making sacrifices or you're taking lifestyle hits to get where you want to be. You want to tell my audience a little bit about what that was like for you. What did what did that journey look like for you?
0: I mean, I'm I'm still in that journey, right? I still I still have to have those lifestyle shifts and and have those hits that come. I mean, the the time away from family when we have to go look at a property or anything like that. I mean, the, these things, you know. Yes, I stepped away from my nine to five job, right? And it's it's not all rainbows and sunshine uh, since that happened, right? The grass is not greener. Now it's a, it's a different hustle, right? It's a different, it's a different job for me now. And, you know, it's working from home too, can also be very painful, especially because now you have your family who thinks that you're just there readily available all the time. it's kind of like, no, I, I still got work to do. I, I, I have to get this stuff done before we can play a game or before we can hang out, you know, that's what I got to tell my kids. Right. So that can be difficult. And then like different events, like if you, you know, you're traveling to conferences and going to different events, that's time away that, you know, my family's like, well, I thought now you're home. Why are you flying, you know, to Phoenix to go to this real estate wealth builders conference and leaving us for a couple of days? Like my youngest daughter wasn't having it. She was not happy at all. Um, so when I came home, she was extremely happy. But it's like, you know, she she was like, you know, I thought that was over since you're not in the Navy anymore. Um, so there's still those different things, right. That you have to deal with. Um, but you have to be able to separate that, that work and, and family, and then you have to be able to bring it together at the right spot to have a a good work-life balance. Right. So that's whether you're working at your nine to five or you're a full-time real estate investor, you still have to have that balance. Right. And sometimes that could be really difficult to do when you go from shifting from a nine to five to being full-time in real estate. Sometimes that can be really difficult because now you're like, okay, where do I put this imaginary line that, okay, this is where, this is my stopping point, right? So I think it's very important that, you know, one of the things that we learn how to do is time block. So for me, that's been one of the biggest things that's helped me out is time blocking my entire day. Like my calendar, if you look at it, it's got all these different colors and all this different stuff that's on it. Um, And that's all things that I'm going to do in those moments. Like I have family time. On the calendar. I have, you know, game night. I have when I'm going to eat lunch, I have everything on my calendar and yes, it, it's a little bit regimented, but at the same time, you know, those things pop up. I'll get a reminder. Hey, this is in 10 minutes. I know I have to go do this. So I know I have to cut off whatever I'm working on right now. So there is still, I'm not saying that it's, uh, harder than working a nine to five, but you're still on that grind, right? And, and there will come a point where I get to say, "Okay, I back off," and now I'm fully 100% retired. Um, I just don't know when that point's going to be at for me. Because yes, I've reached financial independence, but at the same time, it's like I don't know how to turn it off yet. So that's probably one of the other difficult things that that you would appreciate, Terry, as well.
1: Yeah, no, hundred like I, I 100% relate to that. I think the the first point that you made of, um, you know being just having boundaries around different things in your life and um knowing where those are because you know if I if I put this into my own context like I had a, I struggled with that you know and I think also as you go through different phases of life like I started investing when you know I was single and like I was you know had a, a career as like a combat uh, sport athlete you know like in, in jiu-jitsu competing left and right and so like it was like super easy. Like if I needed to just go do some visits, to handle some stuff, email till like 9 p.m. because my training was this and whatever, like it's totally fine. But then you have kids and then like all of a sudden it's <laughs> that, that takes on its own thing. And then you want to make sure that every part of your life is getting uh, the the justice and getting the time that it deserves. And that juggling act when you're in a sense, self-employed really, and you have goals and what you're trying to do. Like that's, that's, I think, uh, you know, Uh, definitely a dance that needs to be done. And then the when is enough enough? Because like, I think what happens also is like, you know, like you, I was laughing when you said, oh, you know, I have attained financial independence, but like, I don't know when to stop. And like, I'm kind of in the same in the same boat, you know, like if you look at, all right, well, like my bills are pretty much paid for. We have like the lifestyle that like I wanted my family to have, but I still like I'm not done, you know, so like what? And then and then what do you do with the I'm not done? So
0: yeah, like, I, and I think I was telling you this at RubeCon too. I, I told a couple of people, but like, I've been kind of torn lately, but like, my family is just like, they're really not used to me being home this much. So I even debated just going back to get a job just to get out of the house and just do something. Right. So there, there's, I mean, that's on the table too, but it's, I'm still trying to figure it out. Right. Cause it's been, I've, I guess I've been home now for a little over six months and it's still, we still are not in a good rhythm yet where we feel like we're at a good place. I, I even thought about renting an office out in town and doing all my work out of an office. Um, but then I'm like, I don't feel like paying for that when I feel like uh, I have an office at home, AKA my, my closet. Really my wife wants her closet back. I think that's what she really wants me out of the house for is to get her closet back. So, uh, but yeah.
1: Yeah, no, no, a hundred percent. I'm actually working. I'm working from home today, but most of the podcasts I do are, are from the office and like, unashamedly, I rent an office that gets me out of the house and we share it actually with a couple of other small business people and, and investors. And, and so it creates this like kind of a space where like we can go and everybody has young kids and we can get away from our families and be in like a work environment where those priorities are not there. And I think, I think COVID's responsible for that too, because I yeah. think it just, you know, mashed everybody into the same spot. And, and now like some of those boundaries that we had, um, are not where they used to be and especially like you know with the zoom world um now you could you're having a business meeting and like your kids doing their homework right there like it's you know that didn't used to it didn't used to be like that you used to have to actually go and see people so for sure um That's a good point so last question what do you think we should be talking about in the real estate industry that we're not talking about I, I selfishly ask the lifestyle question because I feel like that's, I always want to hear that from people. I want to hear what their story is. And I think it's not on the map enough, but what else is not on the map from your perspective?
0: Honestly. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm probably taking this uh, because of somebody that I had. Um, we did, we did a 12 hour event the other day on Monday, a streaming event. Uh, three, three of us hosts split it up into four hours each. We interviewed 24 people in a span of 12 hours. And uh, the very last person that we had on was, he goes by The Blind Blogger, and we were talking about inclusion, right? And accessibility. And I think that is probably something, that that is a conversation that we should have in the real estate investing space, um, is having accessibility and inclusion for real estate investors, right? Um, a lot of times, you know, we go to the conferences, we go to these meetups and we see, you know, all these different presentations. Um, but really for folks that have a disability, if they're, if they might be hearing impaired or visually impaired, a lot of times there's not anything available for them. So, you know, if there's a way to, in the future, like actually, you know, what we could do too, like even with the RubeCon stuff, take those recordings, transcribe them, you know. Uh, provide, you know, some type of, uh, you know, for any of the text that was up there, like on the slides and presentations, something that'll read it back to them, you know, maybe pause what the speaker's saying and read what's on the slides, just something like that, uh, that way that there's a a little bit more of accessibility and inclusion uh, on that side of things. I feel like, you know, I I think that the numbers uh, that he gave me, was like 1.7 billion, People in the world have some type of impairment or disability where they need some type of accessibility, Um, and that's a huge number of people that we're not really speaking to. I think so. I think that would be a great thing to start looking at.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's actually so interesting because, like, I you know, as I talk to um, you know my colleagues, people around me who are have more corporate jobs, I always joke that like you know us in the real estate world, like we're in the '80s, man. Like, (laughs) like, what is there? Did feminism happen? Because like, I'm not aware of it. Like often, you know, in these investor things, there's like, whatever, 10, 15% of women. And even that is like way back. And so all of the, you know, diversity, inclusion, um, some of this thinking that I think is making its way through the corporate world, like the real estate space is like, not there. So I think you're absolutely
0: right about that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I know I have to work on. Like, I know I need to make my websites more accessible with like the alt text on the pictures and stuff. So I'm trying to actively work on that. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like that's probably not the answer you're expecting either. But uh, I feel like, you know, that's, that's something that we should be talking about uh, in this space.
1: Yeah. Okay. No, good point. Um, all right, Mike, it's been a pleasure sharing this uh, half hour with you. Any last words of wisdom wanna tell the audience where they can find you if they wanna learn more about you?
0: Sure, you know what, for my last words of wisdom, I'll tell you about my four pillars to building wealth really quick, and I'll keep it quick, okay? Uh, The first one's education. So you need to learn whatever it is that you're trying to get into, you need to educate yourself on it. The second thing is mentorship and coaching, okay? And know the difference between a mentor and a coach. Uh, The third thing is networking and building relationships. And then the fourth one, which which makes the other three like not even worth getting into, if you don't do this fourth one, is take action. So if you can follow those four pillars, you're going to be successful in whatever niche or business or if it's real estate, whatever it is you're trying to get into, you follow those four pillars, you're going to be able to crush it. Uh, as for me, um, you can find me anywhere on social media at Mike Cavagioni, M-I-K-E-C-A-V-A-G-G-I-O-N-I. Or to make things easier, my website, themikecav, T-H-E-M-I-K-E-C-A-V.com, has links to all of my websites, everything I'm working on, uh, and my social media, everything's there. You can find me there.
1: Yeah, we'll drop that in the show notes. So, Mike, thanks again for spending this time with us and uh, wishing you a great rest of the day.
0: It was a blast, Terry. Thank you for having me. Aloha. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.